Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Victor Madrigal Borlaz, is a Costa Rican jurist who serves as the UN independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. In other words, he is the UN's top watchdog for LGBTI rights worldwide. The fact that this position even exists in the UN system was, at the time, controversial. In UN lingo, his position is known as the IE SOGI, or the Independent Expert on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. It was created in 2016 by votes in the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly, the latter of which includes every UN member state. Some of these states are actively hostile to LGBT rights and accordingly sought to block establishing his role. They were unsuccessful, and Victor Madrigal Borlos has now been on his job for two years. When I spoke with the IE Soji, he had just briefed the General Assembly on his latest reports on LGBTI rights globally, so we kick off discussing that report and have a broader conversation about how he goes about his work fulfilling his mandate to protect LGBTI individuals around the world. Before we start, just some quick background on one aspect of the UN Human Rights Protection System, of which Victor Madrigal Borlos is a member. So the IE SOGI is one of dozens of independent experts and so-called special rapporteurs that report to the Human Rights Council about both thematic and country-specific human rights issues. So, for example, there are special rapporteurs on the situation of human rights in Iran and North Korea, and there are special rapporteurs tours covering issues like the rights of people with disabilities or focusing on protection of the freedom of expression worldwide. In all, there are over 50 of these positions, and taken together, they are called, quote, special procedures. I give you this all in way of background, both because I think it's pretty interesting, uh, and also because uh, Victor Madrigal Borlas references special procedures in our conversation. So sticking with a theme, my bonus episode this week for premium subscribers is my conversation with Ambassador Michael Guest, who is the first publicly gay man to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate and serve as a U.S. ambassador. He tells a great story, and that episode and dozens of other premium episodes are available to you by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches. Or you can just follow the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com to unlock your premium subscription. You'd be helping the show and helping yourself. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Victor Madrigal Borlaz. 
Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, once, once I issue a report um, such as the one that I was presenting today, the member states uh, of the UN will study it and will formulate uh, both observations and uh, questions on the basis of it. And what happened today, um, October 24th, uh, at the UN headquarters in New York, was what is called an interactive dialogue, where I do a presentation of my main findings and recommendations, and states take the floor to actually present their observations and raise their questions, and I get the possibility to providing them feedback. I benefit from very vigorous uh, interlocution with states. So uh, today there were several dozen states that uh, presented their observations to the report. I was delighted that uh, the interchange was uh, very substantive, and, and it reflected the substantive concern of states to promoting social inclusion of LGTB persons. Mm. So I want to get into the substance of your uh, report in a minute. I just have a, a question about process and procedure and who was in the room in that interactive dialogue, because you know, the your position uh, when it was created by the Human Rights Council and uh, the General Assembly, you know, not all states voted for it. Some voted against creating the, your position in the first place. Were any of those states who voted against creating your position in the room, were they willing to participate with you? Absolutely. I, interesting. I think, I think that the dynamics of the mandate are quite interesting in that respect. Uh, for example, when the mandate was created in 2016, it was a very hotly debated creation. And I would say that it would be an accurate depiction to say that uh, in numbers, there were almost as many states against the creation of the mandates as they were for. And it was with it was a, a really vote. close vote, I remember. It was a really close vote. It was basically a five votes difference between for and against. Now, the mandate was created for three years. And in June of this year, the renewal of the mandate was debated. And what is very interesting is that uh, in this uh, case, only 12 states voted against the creation of the mandate this time. So you actually had a situation where a majority of states either voted for the creation of the mandate or abstained. And as I say, only 12 states voted for the creation of the mandate. Why, why is that, do you think? Why was there such a shift? I think that, there, that the mandate has been effective at providing an evidence base that uh, is persuasive uh, and based on objective facts to the effect that LGBT persons have existed in all societies and in all times, and that their concerns about violence and discrimination are very real and felt every day. And I think that uh, I like to think that states have been answering what is a call 
for them to assume the responsibility to seize themselves of this problematic and adopt uh, effective solutions to it. Uh, and so that brings me then to your presentation to states today and your report. What what did you tell the member states that, that participated in your dialogue and what are some of the key findings of your report? So this report was uh, very special because it was the last one in a series of reports issued by the mandate over the last three years that covered the initial agenda for priorities of the mandate that took point of departure in criminalization and ended up in today's topic, which is social inclusion. And the at the base of this thematic agenda lies the mandate's conviction that um, there are certain barriers to uh, inclusion of LGTB persons, and that key amongst them is criminalization. You may know that as of today, still 69 countries criminalize sexual orientation or gender diversity, in 10 cases with the death penalty. And that this legislation is a very, very real barrier, hmm. but that even going beyond that legislation, even in contexts that have decriminalized a very long time ago or have never had criminalization, social exclusion of LGTB persons is a very real concern. And the report that I presented today addresses that uh, concern about social exclusion by analyzing four priority sectors, employment, housing, education, and health, and analyzing the factors that maintain LGTB persons in situations of rupture or exclusion with the services provided by the state through those sectors. So so a couple of, of questions. Um, in your interaction with the member states today, did, were any member states present that had criminalization of same-sex relations on, on the books? Indeed. There were many states present that still maintain criminalization. What did they say to and, you? Well, I think that uh, there there is always a, a mix of uh, reactions uh, to the mandate. Uh, as I say, several dozen states took the floor. In some cases, states that entered these dialogues um, will claim that by not implementing the legislation, it's enough. Mm. By having the facto moratoriums in the implementation of legislation, it's enough. In other cases, they will maintain that it's a legitimate exercise of their domestic uh, jurisdiction to maintain criminalization and that it is um, a structure that is deeply rooted in traditional values, for example. So what when country said that to you? Um, well, not today, but mm. I think there, there, there is, for example, the response of Brunei Dar es Salaam uh, to my concerns expressed in a public letter when uh, stoning was reintroduced. Um, there was. Uh, both sure, I, I should say you're you're referring to a recent incident in which Brunei Dar Brunei uh, reinstituted the death penalty for same-sex relations, presumably, correct? That is correct. And in that case, there was both the um, argument that uh, the uh, legislation when it was in fact not implemented, but also that it was part of a structure of implementation of traditional values. You may also know that. Um, that a number of countries that criminalize maintain that this is part of constitutional structures that were enshrined with um, clauses that do not allow uh, modification of this legislation. 
that is typical of countries in the Caribbean, for example, where this is considered to be part of a constitutional structure that was left behind by the British um, uh, uh, rule. And, uh, you know, we deal in each and every case with trying to understand why these arguments are being raised, when in reality they all have the effect of making criminals out of people who are simply being who they are and loving who they choose to love. Uh, and, and so you said your report focused on four areas and social exclusion uh, around those four areas. Can you give some examples of of what that looks like in practice, some examples that, that you perhaps found in your report and included in your report? Absolutely. The report, for example, examines the situation of LGBT youth. And uh, it's the first time that the mandate had the opportunity of taking such an intersectional approach, studying the situation of people by age group, for example. And what is revealed by the data is actually quite disturbing. For example, LGBT youth is disproportionately represented in homeless population. Uh, I found that where data exists, it reveals that between 40 to 50 percent of homeless youth identifies as LGBT. This is obviously disproportionately representing the population, and it reveals root causes that are actually important to address, such as the fact that LGBT persons tend to be uh, kicked uh, from home by their own families, that they tend to drop out from school out of uh, the result of bullying and uh, threats and exclusion in general. And as a result of all of this, they are also disproportionately affected by poverty, and in a particular case, homelessness. But the phenomena continues all across the board. For example, I found that there's a huge problematic of LGBT youth that being overly represented in homeless population will typically be likely turned away from shelters that are not properly equipped and the sensitivities of which are not properly equipped to actually deal with particular needs of trans youth, for example. And so uh, by analyzing this uh, age group, I came uh, with a number of conclusions that uh, I believe to a number of actors have been invisible up until now. Uh, Like what, for example? Well, uh, I can give you another example. Uh, I analyzed the situation of older persons, Hmm. and it's become evident to me that uh, gay men, for example, have... um, a lot more prevalence of factors that are predictors for the development of cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's in old age. Hmm. These include, for example, stress in youth and early adulthood, estrangement from biological families or lack of contact or very random contact with biological families, social networks that are composed by persons of the same age and therefore with the same vulnerabilities, and high prevalence of HIV-AIDS. All of these factors actually multiply manifold uh, the, the probability of development of cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's, which means, therefore, that in a very, very specific way, gay men constitute themselves into a risk group uh, uh, in a very particular way. Um. Uh- does your report identify examples of in- entities or policies that are taking the right approach to these issues that that you know ideas or policies or organizations whose work might be emulated elsewhere 
Absolutely. I There's a number of uh, guidances for my mandate, and one of them is that I should work equally hard to make visible violence and discrimination as I work to provide advice to states on what might be effective measures to address such violence and discrimination. And my reports always have a very deliberate effort to have as many uh, contents related to exposing violence uh, than providing examples. And some of them uh, are very, very uh, related to the state action. For example, I bring the example of a uh, program in Australia destined to design uh, and implement uh, social assistance and care for elder persons from the point of view of specificities of the LGBT population. But in some other cases, they might be, as you say, created and implemented by civil society. I bring to light uh, one very interesting case of a, uh, an inclusive church created in South Africa that is implementing a wide range of social interventions from the point of view of faith-based movements that are working from inclusion and respect. In the course of, of your research and looking for these kinds of instances of, of inclusion, uh, have you found any any example that just sort of truly surprised you or something that was in an unexpected place doing un, unexpected things? Um, well, unexpected in the sense that uh, I believe that there are very interesting instances of work being done in contexts that are very regressive in some cases. So uh, I am always impressed and very, very uh, motivated by the efforts of civil society that are operating in criminalized contexts and where they are coming up always with compassionate and inventive ways to support communities and populations even in an absolute absence of state support. And in that case, what I find is that communities uh, come up with extremely inspiring examples of how uh, the community itself empowers uh, to help members. So uh, I would say that some of the efforts of communities in, um, in the trans community, for example, to provide for networks of, of protection for networks of information and protection are are remarkable and uh, and actually quite inspirational, as I say. So, I mean, do you consider part of your job to be sort of looking out for examples like of what you just described and telling activists or groups in, in other countries or even government leaders in other countries about what is happening, you know, to highlight these um, examples of, 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 you know, inclusivity? For anyone who was in the room this morning when I presented my report, uh, the conclusion would be that about a third of the member states that took the floor precisely asked me for my impressions and examples on good practices. Hmm. There is an appetite by states that are willing and interested to take their responsibility in relation to violence and discrimination to be inspired by good practice. And in that sense, I absolutely consider it as part of my work to provide good documentation of what might be working and what might be working best in other contexts. So in your two years that, that you've been at this job, I suppose maybe a little over two years at this point, um, 
could you uh, identify any specific success or, or impact that that your interventions have had? Like, could you draw a line between, um, you know, between either highlighting some horrible abuse that's happening or, um, you know, pr- protecting people in vulnerable situations? Uh, like, are are there any examples of your individual interventions that have led to, you know, the protection of human rights or the upholding of, of human rights that you could share? Well, uh, my answer will have two parts. Firstly, uh, all special procedures manage a system that is called the communication system through which we can actually engage states in um, particular cases where we are concerned about human rights violations. And although this is a system that is marked by an initial confidentiality and where, if successful, uh, there's usually not a particular attribution of uh, causation to the work of the mandate. I have been very satisfied to answers to some of the concerns that I raised by states, mostly in cases where very specific instances uh, where people were being, for example, harassed or threatened, um, either in person or through social media, for example, where I have seen that states have taken very definite action. Uh, and I, I believe that in some of these cases, it might be connected to the dialogue that we've taken. Mm. But, more, but more importantly, I think that the most important success of the creation of this mandate, and it's, it's not uh, the merit of any individual mandate holder, but rather the community of states and civil society that support its work, is that the mandate has been able to raise this conversation with a very wide variety of stakeholders. One of the methodological approaches of this mandate is that whenever I go to a country, I try to meet as many faith-based organizations and organized religions as I can. And being able to talk to them about violence and discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity through a, an evidence-based dis- dialogue, I think has been uh, one of the great achievements in the existence of this mandate. Why, why, why did you choose faith-based groups in particular as the ones that you seek to, uh, to engage when you visit countries? Beyond states and civil society, which are, of course, traditional interlocutors of the mandate, I think faith-based organizations have great potential for uh, positive and also negative impact in the field of sexual orientation and gender identity. I have found throughout my work and my research that in many instances, discourse that uh, crosses the line to hate speech can be determining in inciting violence and discrimination, and that when it's actually issued uh, by religious leaders or religious figures, it can be particularly uh, impactful Mm -hmm. in a negative sense. But I also know, and I have had many, many experiences and observations about faith-based groups and religions that are working from the point of view of respect and inclusion. And in those cases, I see uh, an extraordinary impact for the good uh, in promoting inclusion and respect of human rights, uh, also uh, supported very strongly from uh, 
from the standpoint of, of faith. It's just interesting to me, you know, having, it seems to me, I should say, that having that UN brand behind your name, as opposed to just being some, you know, NGO leader, you know, advocating on behalf of LGBTI people, that, that you're able to open a few more doors, I would presume, than you would otherwise. Well, I think that, the, that, that it's a complementary thing. I think that uh, nothing will ever replace the work of civil society in the sense that civil society is working from a point of view of empowering itself to claim rights. In my case, what I do is I come in mandated by the community of nations, and of course that provides me a legitimacy, but also with the particular mandate to advise states. And I position myself very much as an objective um, uh, observer and then uh, hoping from the point of view of technical expertise to advise states on how they can best fulfill their obligations under international law. So it's a very different function, but I will acknowledge that uh, both uh, the relevance given to the mandate as the enormous support that it has had from civil society, um, you know, over 1,300 organizations from, uh, from 174 countries coalesced for the renewal. So all of those aspects, of course, give the mandate a voice that is vigorous. Um, so you mentioned earlier uh, that the special procedures, and, and I should say this is a term of art around the UN for uh, UN independent experts like yourself and the special rapporteurs uh, dispatched by the Human Rights Council, these are called the special procedures, that they have, that you have, um, these kind of method of communication with governments that's that's confidential that you if you see for example uh someone being harassed because of their sexual orientation in a country you have an a channel an official channel in which to reach out and, and raise your concern is that right that is absolutely the case and uh, it's a process aimed at uh, in uh, at specific concerns i would say not only of individual violations but also it might be applied to uh, state actions that may have a systemic effect, for example, legislation that is being prepared and that may have discriminatory contents or impact. Mm. And presumably there are instances in which the country that you're reaching out to is very receptive, uh, but also there are instances in which the country probably just ignores or diminishes what you have to say or dismisses what you have to say. Um. Well, for the moment being, I think that I've benefited from very constructive dialogue with all countries that have engaged with the mandate. Um, so I would say that, uh, that, that to me, the most important thing is trying to understand those states that consider that this is not a valid point of entry to understanding violence and discrimination. What I want to do is to dialogue and understand why it is that they consider so. Let me give you an example. There are countries that basically will deny the existence of LGBT persons within their jurisdiction. Um, in that case, uh, what I'm interested in is to understand what is the evidence base that fundamentals such a, such a statement. And if they truly uh, believe that uh, there's not one gay, yeah. one lesbian, one trans person within their jurisdiction, uh, how, what is it that this is based upon? Yeah, I, I'm reminded of Mahmoud Al-Kamadinejad's uh, remarks uh, that there are no gays in Iran not long ago when, when he uh, spoke in New York. That is correct. That is that is one such statement. Um, finally, 
Is there anything else regarding your work or the report that you just issued that you think deserves highlighting that, uh, you know, people who you know are generally in the foreign policy community, but don't necessarily follow, uh, you know, the work, your work or LGBT rights issues more broadly ought to know in terms both of, of positive and negative trends you're seeing worldwide? I think the, the conclusions of the report uh, very much uh, reinforce the notion that states that uh, want to work on eradicating violence and discrimination cannot afford uh, not to uh, have uh, a point of entry in uh, sexual orientation and gender identity as well as others. The, all of the findings of the mandate point out to one direction, which is that nobody is defined solely because they are gay or lesbian or trans or bisexual. People have many identities in one body and experiences of discrimination and violence are usually the result of the compounded effect of these identities. So, uh, it's important to have a point of departure in sexual orientation and gender identity as a way to enter into the conversation, but there needs to be a willingness to take very rich narratives and analysis that would actually take into consideration a very wide scope of social relations. And in that, I'm very uh, privileged that the United Nations System of Special Procedures has a number of rapporteurs working from different angles with which I have partnered over the last three years to produce my reports. Uh, well, well, thank you so much for your time, Victor. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Victor. That was super interesting. I've always been fascinated and really have admired the work of uh, the special procedures. They actually do, I think, make a meaningful difference in a lot of places around the world. And I've had other uh, special rapporteurs on the show in the past, including David Kay, who's the special rapporteur for protection of freedom of expression worldwide. So do check out that episode as well. All right. Thank you all for listening. And a big, big thank you to those of you who support the show through monthly recurring contributions as a premium subscriber. Thank you. You help me do what I do. All right. We'll see you later. Bye.